1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our text for this morning will be found in verses 12 through 14, though I'm going to back up and I'm going to include verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll start reading verse 11 down to 14. The Apostle Paul writing to the believers at Corinth, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. We are plowing our way through Paul's epistles to the church at Corinth, and we're working systematically through the letter as an inspired text. And we've titled our sermon series, Living the Christian Life. And as I am wont to do every time I begin to preach a sermon out of this book, is to remind us uh, of what Paul views or how Paul views the Christian life, what it is to live the Christian life. And I'll say this, I have said this, I'll say it again that the Christian life is impossible for you and I to live. Do we understand that? The Christian life is impossible for us to live. We do not possess the righteousness that is connected to the title Christian. We don't have it. And so whenever a human being attempts to be a Christian out of their own power, out of their own activity... They, at best, are moralists. At worst, complete failures. And so this is why we will will say that living the Christian life is an impossibility. It's an impossibility apart from Christ, that is. And so the Apostle Paul has laid out for us in the first four chapters the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word gospel simply means good news. And so he's laid out the necessity of the good news that concerns Jesus Christ and his cross. This is unique. Paul does not leave out the cross in these first four chapters. In fact, when he talks about the gospel, he reminds the church that when Jews hear of Christ and the cross, it's scandalous to them. When the Gentiles hear of Christ and his cross, it's moronic to them. And and so it's one thing to hear of a man who is a savior, but when you put that savior and you nail him to the idea of a cross, that's where you begin to have the problems. If for the Jew, the Messiah is to be hung on the cross as a cursed individual, how can he be God's salvation? If he's a savior to the Gentile mind and he dies, how can he be victorious as a savior? 
in the Jewish or in the Gentile mind, a savior is one who triumphs in victory. But if he dies in the battle, he is no savior. And so it's moronic. Literally, it's what Paul says here. It's moronic to the Gentile mind to think of a savior who dies to save his people. And so the good news of Christ and his cross is of absolute necessity because the cross is a picture of all things gruesome to us, all things devastating to us, all things backwards to us. Do you remember what the Jews cried out when they passed the cross, when Christ was hanging there? They yelled out, come off the cross if you are the Son of God, if he will have you. What words? If God would have him? You see, in the Jewish mind, it was an impossibility. It was scandalous to think that God would become a curse. He's the Holy One. He's the Righteous One. In fact, they don't even say his name. That's how other than he is. So certainly he would not become what we are. But that's the necessity of the cross, isn't it? That's the necessity of a Christ, a Messiah, who hangs on a cursed cross. In that moment of the cross, all of the wrath of God comes pouring down. In the moment of that cross, all of the grace of God is flowing down. In the moment of the cross, all the power of God is put on display. So much so, these realities are so true, and so much so that in that moment, the world could not comprehend it. The universe could not contain it. The sun goes dark. The rocks break in half. The dead come to life. This is the Christ and his cross that we speak of. The wrath of God, the grace of God, the power of God, it all comes crashing down on one man, one place, in one moment, and the universe could not contain it. Oh, what glory the cross of Christ is. And that's what makes the Christian life possible. The wrath of of God meets the grace of God. And though we like to talk about expiation, expiation isn't enough. We speak in terms of propitiation. Jesus was not just the satisfying atonement for sin. He didn't just cover the sin like the animals did in the old covenant way. But he also became the object of God's pleasure. He was the object of God's wrath, but in the same moment, he was the object of God's pleasure. He didn't just make satisfaction for sin. He became the satisfaction of God. And those who put their faith Upon that Jesus in his cross. Will experience the salvation. 
that results from that cosmic collision. Wrath and grace. If you're here this morning and you have not seen Jesus as the salvation of God for you, you have no justification on the day of judgment. When you live this life, this life is over because it's a vapor. It comes and disappears. All that you've accomplished is left behind. Nothing carries over into the next world. When you stand before God, what justification will you have? What argument can you make in order to win over his good pleasure? You better be able to look to his right hand and point to his Jesus, his Savior, his Son, and say, there is my vindication, my righteousness. You see, this is what makes living the Christian life possible. Listen, if you're here this morning, you've not put your faith in Christ, put your faith in Christ. Believe upon him. Take him as your own. Let him be your righteousness. Let him be the, 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 the sponge that soaked up the wrath of God for your sin. Trust in him this morning. But when you do, be prepared for something. Be prepared for a transformation of life right? It's going to leave you spinning, right? Like the song, you turn me right around, right? That's what you're going to feel like. Like, what is happening? Your life is going to be rearranged. The way that the ancients put it is, he turns the world upside down. That's what the gospel does for you. It's going to change your life. I'm not going to preach a prosperity gospel, because I promise you that when your life is changed, also comes the favor of the world towards you. The, the world that used to love you now is going to hate you. Okay? Just be ready for that. But the hatred the world has for you will not compare to the love that God has for you. And the wrath of the world that will fall upon you cannot compare to the glory of the cross that will be yours in the eternal state. When the Father says to you, Enter into your heavenly abode, my good and faithful servant. You will look to Jesus and you will say, Jesus, thank you. Right? But even now in this moment, when you first begin to believe, there's going to be a transformation of life. And this is the Christian life that we're talking about. This is not one that we're making happen. This is not the one that we are we're building on like we don't we don't do things and perform activities and we don't cross uh, our t's and dot i's and check boxes that's not the christian life the christian life is now that we've been changed from the inside it's just going to bubble out on the out it's going to outflow christ outflows you can't help it there's been a new change since you've been born again if you have not experienced that you can't even fathom the glory that's associated with being Christ's. And so Paul now begins to speak in chapter 5 and following. He's beginning to now unpack the practical realities of a life that overflows with Jesus. What does that look like? How does that, how does that affect the way that we do things and the way that we think about things? And how does that, how does that change the direction of our life? How does, that, how does that affect the engagements that we have with our fellow human beings. Remember, the, great, the second great commandment is like the first. The first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, spirit, strength, mind, and body. And the second is like that. Do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. How's that going to happen? The gospel. 
the gospel. So our, our identity now is being addressed. And what, what, we, what we found is that Paul immediately begins to deal with one of the very first issues that the flesh will deal with when it is transformed. And unsurprisingly to us, the first issue he deals with is sexuality. And I have to say that as I'm thinking through this over the weeks, we've been talking about this, the Christian life and, and sexuality or sexual expression. As, as this has been going on, I've been thinking, like, it, it's amazing to me that sexuality is where we, we, we fight the battle of identity. Who are we? Well, we point to our sexuality. What? I don't understand why we do this, but we do this. And so I'm not surprised that Paul has to deal with that issue immediately in the church. And he dealt last week, we noticed he dealt with the issues of sexual immorality, especially in the areas of homosexuality and effeminacy and trans, uh, trans type of, of expression. Those individuals are looking for an identity apart from Christ. And as such, what they're looking for, they do not get. They do not get the deliverance and the salvation. In fact, they miss that. They miss the kingdom of God. So we noticed that from last time we were together. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Don't be deceived about that. And so our identity is not in ourselves. It is not in our expressions. Our identity is... Christ, who lives in us. And this is the essence of the, of the Christian life and in, in of Christian living. We are not seeking to equal Christ in our living, but we are living out the Christ who lives in us. If you try to equal Christ with Christ beside you, you fail. The only way you arrive at Christ is if he is in you. Haven't you ever been surprised before? at how you have responded to certain earthly situations, you say, that's not me. I would have never responded in this way exactly. It's because the Christ who lives in you is just flowing out of you. and He's making adjustments in our lives. And so the Christian life is an outflow from the overflow. This is how we have to define the Christian life. It's not do's and don'ts. It's outs and overs. Christians are indeed redeemed. We're going to see this today in our text. We are liberated. We are free men in Christ. We've been freed from sin. We've been freed from the flesh. We've been freed from the world. But we have to understand something, and Paul's going to expound upon this point in our text. And This is where we're all going to come to a head here in verse 12 in just a moment. But we have to understand that while we have been redeemed or liberated, we are not libertines. We are not libertines, meaning we are not free from any type of obligation. In fact, as Paul is going to point out, when we become Christians, we are free unto obligation. And we're going to see how this works out in Paul's teaching and, and, and how this, what this looks like in Paul's mind. Verse 12, we find for the very first time this expression. All things are lawful for me. 
all things are lawful for me. Now, as we've been reading up to this point, and we've been unpacking Paul's teaching at this point, this doesn't sound like this is Paul's point. <laughs> and it's not Paul's point. Paul is not going to preach here or teach here an antinomian ideology. Now, in your Bibles, you're going to note something. If you have the King James, it's going to be a little different. The King James is going to end that statement with a colon punctuation mark. The modern translations are going to have, uh, have um, uh, yeah, quote, what are they, parentheses? Is that what they are? Uh, around this phrase. All things are lawful for me. What we're going to notice is that now that Paul begins to, to address the practicalities of Christ in us, he is going to be answering some questions, some doctrinal issue questions that the church at Corinth apparently has been writing to him about. Now, remember, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. It's the second epistle to the church. We don't know what the first one was. We don't know when the first one was given. He just speaks to that first letter um, in chapter 5. When he says that he had spoken to them previously about certain things. But we are certain, pretty certain, that what Paul is doing now is he is going to begin to speak to questions that were posed to him through this back and forth correspondence. You can think of this as a type of modern question and answer, right? Um, uh, ask Paul, right? That's, that would be kind of like a, a podcast title if, if, he, if he was doing this today, you know? Ask Paul, and then you would send in your questions, and he would, he'd have a podcast answering your questions. That's kind of what he's doing here, but on parchment. All things are lawful for me. This expression is going to need some qualification because it is suggested that Paul is employing a couple of Greek or Corinthian maxims that were meant to advise Corinthians in the way that they might live their life. And in the mind of the Greek Corinthians, all things are lawful to them. Now, what do we know about the Greeks? What were the Greeks fascinated with? Wisdom, knowledge. They were also infatuated with the human body. All of this will end up coming to a head in these, these pagans' philosophical points of view, or let's just put it in more understandable language, this would come to a head in their worldview. Things that are wise-sounding, that seem to be logical, and that pertain to the strengthening and, the, and, and, and the, the pleasing of the body, these are things that they were interested in. And so some of these questions are going to come to Paul, and they're going to deal with some of those philosophical points of view. And so basically what Paul is doing here is he's pointing back to a question that seems to have been asked of him and, and, or, or even a slogan that he heard said amongst the Corinthians, namely that all things are lawful for me. And Paul wants to address them from a Christian worldview or a Christian perspective. This slogan is a kind of promotion of 
an antinomian or free spirit type of ideology. In fact, in our modern time, we're not too far from such a slogan as this. We hear things like, believe in yourself, trust your heart, whatever feels good, do it. Do what seems right to you. And so what has happened is we've now moved into a post-postmodern environment where there's, no, there's not even an absolute for the individual who opposed absolutes in the modern age. All things are lawful for me to do. If you ever watch any of these YouTube clippings of these, these conservatives who engage college students and, and, and um, these strong humanists of our, our day and age, you can't even logic with them. You can't speak with them. There's nothing that makes sense to them because nothing is definite for them. Nothing. They don't even know if what they know is what they know. This is the, this is the end of world wisdom. It, it eventually outthinks itself. And what ends up happening is all things then become permissible and acceptable and lawful to do. And apparently this is a slogan that has been going around Corinth and maybe even within the church. And Paul's wanting to clarify a couple things for the saints in regard to this particular maxim. Paul says, all things are lawful. Right? All things are lawful for me, and there's the end of the parentheses there. But notice what he says. But not all things are helpful. What Paul's about to do is he's about to lay on them a truth bomb. The church cannot adopt the mantra of the world. The church cannot adopt the mindset of of the world. For this reason, all things, Paul will argue, are lawful for the Christian that are not unlawful to God. This kind of fits the question that atheists often ask a Christian. Is there anything that God cannot do? If he's all-powerful, right? If he's all-powerful, and he can do anything. You say, you Christians say he can do anything. Is there anything that he cannot do? And we will say, yes, because he is so powerful, there are things that he cannot do, such as he cannot lie. He cannot sin. You try that and see how powerful you are in spirit to refrain from ever lying or ever sinning or ever bringing violation against absolute righteousness. And so they think they've trapped us, right? <laughs> you Christians think, you know, they ask the question, can God create something that he can't control? What is there that's outside or bigger than God? And no, he cannot make something that he can't control because that would be giving his glory to another and that's another thing that God cannot do. He is the ultimate supreme being. He is above all things higher than everything. There is nothing that is above him. All things are under him because he is the Alpha, the Omega. He is God. So there cannot be anything above God. 
Can God make anything bigger than himself? No, because that would violate his character. This violates the attributes of God. It's impossible for God to make something bigger than himself because he is the biggest thing. Right? In the same way, this flows for the Christian through the gospel. All things are lawful to the saints that are not unlawful before God. To, to point to this, I would just have you look down at verse 20. For you were bought with a price. So therefore, what are we to do? Someone tell me. <laughs> we're to glorify God. So if we were to glorify God with our lives, are there certain things that are not lawful for us to do? You better believe it. There are things that are unlawful for us to do. Later, if you get a chance, would you just look up 1 John chapter 3, verse 4? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. I think John is, is, is sufficient in the expression that he lays out here uh, concerning the lawfulness and the unlawful things of the believer. But let's look at this expression, not all things are helpful. What, is, what does Paul mean here? All things are lawful for me. This is what we've heard it said, Paul says. Here's the, here's the slogan at Corinth. I am a free, God-like being. I can do anything I want to do. I can do all things that I want to do. I can do anything if I just put my mind to it, right? I put my heart into it. I can do all things. Nothing prohibits me from doing what I want to do. Paul says, but there are things that will prohibit the saint. And the prohibition, I want you to notice how he puts this. The prohibition, he doesn't point to written law for the prohibition, does he? He says all things are lawful, but not all things are, what? Helpful, or some translations, beneficial or profitable. His first point will be that liberty is not license. The gospel does not free you to be devils. And so the statement demands the question, Paul, exactly what are you addressing when you say that not all things are Helpful. Helpful for what? Right? That's the question. What do you mean, Paul? We're free to do anything. All things are lawful, but some things we can't do because they're, they're not helpful or beneficial. In what way? For what exactly? That's, that's what the question begs here. The Greek word that's translated as helpful means to contribute or to advantage. Not all things contribute and not all things advantage. All right, so that's, that's what Paul's saying. And now we want to know, advantage us for what? Or contribute to what exactly? It seems to me that the answer to this question has to be righteousness. For two reasons. First, 
Righteousness is the dominating theme in this chapter, right? Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare, does he dare excuse me, go to law before the, what? The unrighteous, right? And then later in verse 9, he says this, Do you not know that the who? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what do we do with our lives? Well, we do things that contribute to, right? Things that advantage us for righteousness' sake. Church, this is really, really important because what's happening here is we recognize that the gospel puts constraints on the believer. The Corinthians have been freed unto righteousness, not from righteousness. I think in our modern day and age, we've gotten that backwards. We think that God does what he does for us. So he saved us from the power of sin and death and Satan so that we can be what we want to be and do what we want to do, right? And be the best us. No, he just saved you from the best of you. That's why you were saved. You were doing the best of you. And that was the worst of you. He pulled you out of yourself. And he led you, he freed you unto righteousness. I hope that you can see this. I want you to note that there are things... For the believer that do not stand under explicit prohibition from the scripture that will be prohibited by way of biblical principle because those things either hinder or prevent us from exhibiting spiritual maturity in righteousness and keep us from conforming to Christ. So, what Paul has done is he has just curbed the libertine mindset of modernists, religious modernists, right? By telling them the gospel is going to put constraints upon you. Not grievous constraints. If the gospel puts grievous constraints on you, we have a problem with with your spirituality. I remember speaking to someone. I was walking by and I was cold door knocking and there was a group of big biker men. I mean, I was, I was a college kid. Like, when I was a freshman in college, I was six foot, 135 pounds, okay? I was a string bean. And I'm by myself and I'm getting ready to walk onto this, this porch and there's like three or four big biker dudes. They're Harleys are parked on the sidewalk, and they're sitting there drinking beer, and they saw me coming, you, you, they're talk, you knew they were waiting for me, right? And I'm, I'm just not making eye contact, and I'm getting, I'm getting my spiritual muster up, and I, I, as I turn to go up towards the porch, one of the guys says, stop right there. I suppose you're going to tell me I'm going to hell. I said, well, only if you have not accepted Christ as God's righteousness. And this is what he said. If I 
If I embrace your gospel, he didn't say embrace, if I accept your gospel, then I have to quit drinking and quit smoking and quit women and quit cursing. And he started giving like a list of things. And he's like, and I, I'm not willing to do that. So you see that what he saw as a conflict was that the, the gospel's grievous. That, that was the conflict that this unbeliever saw with the gospel. The one who's been conquered by the gospel recognizes that the things of God are not grievous to us. Their blessedness, their, their life, their joy, their satisfaction, their peace. Look, the person who shot up last night with a needle this morning didn't wake up in utopia. They're having to defrag this morning. Right? The young lady who spent the night with someone she doesn't even know, he's gone. She's dealing with her guilt this morning. The one who partied hard last night till he was a drunken stupor and doesn't remember what's going on, he's picking himself up from wherever he's at and he's feeling a little lost this morning, a little confused this morning. You see, the things of the world do not bring the peace and satisfaction that Paul is, is promoting in the gospel. The things of the gospel are not grievous to the one who sees Christ as the beautiful. And so if the gospel result and the gospel restriction that is evident in the one's life who has been conquered by the grace of God through the gospel, if that's grievous to you, if you're confessing Christ and that's grievous to you, there's something wrong with your spirituality, your spiritual state. Your heart has perhaps not been baptized in the grace of God. The things that Paul speaks to are things that bring prohibition, not through explicit declaration, not as if he's pointing to the law, but the law still speaks. Sure, you may not be bound by the explicit expression of prohibition, but you are by the way of spirit. If these things hinder your spiritual growth, if these things hinder you from conforming to Christ, these are prohibitions to you. Because whatever is not of faith is what? It's sin. That's the scripture. It's sin. Sometimes with our children, we have to instruct them. It, it's not about what I can do, what I can't do. Sometimes we have to tell our children, we're not going to let you do this because these things do not contribute. They do not advantage you in the faith. But dad, they don't, you know, the song doesn't speak to anything that's, you know, that violates the word of scripture, perhaps, but does it violate the spirit of it? If you want to get technical, remember those who argue we're no longer under the written law, we're under the spirit. Okay, well, let me just say something to you about the spirit of the law. Do you realize that there will be times when the spirit of the law of God may demand more of you as a Christian than the letter of the law did? These new covenant types, at this point, their, their minds flip, right? The law's been abrogated, it's been done away with, right? Christ is, hang on. You're thinking that you have freedom. I can remember one person saying, 
to me one time. Well, I don't, you know, I, I don't believe, I, you know, I, I don't believe that we're under the old law anymore, the law of God, the Old Testament law. So, you know, I don't tithe anymore because we're not under the tithing law. So he sucked up his 10% and never gave money to the gospel ministry that he was a member of. And I said, do you not understand that what you've just done is you violated the very spirit of which you promote? You see, the spirit of the law is no longer you're bound to give 10%. But now the spirit of the law of giving is this. You give generously. You give abundantly. You give cheerfully. Who was it that Christ praised in the synagogue at offering time? The rich who gave their thousands of dollars and they sat there for 10 minutes while the coins just tinkled out of their leather bags. Right? Like at the lottery. And after their great display and all the splash of the gold coins and after the accolades and the praise of the Lord, what a blessing. And everyone's, everyone's watching them as they leave stage, right? Who comes in behind quietly like a mouse? The poor little widow. How much does she have to give? A mite, which is like half a penny. And while everyone's minds and eyes and accolades were on the one who just sat there and dumped his coins for ten minutes into the coffer, they're praising him. This woman comes in and she quietly lays her mite and walks away. The disciples' eyes are over here. Jesus' eyes are over here. And Jesus says, hey, hey, guys, this way. And they look over. Do you see that? Did you see what this woman just did? And they're like, Who? That, 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 that poor widow woman? Yes. Do you see what she gave? She gave more than they gave. How is that even possible? Jesus says, because the rich gave out of the abundance of what they had. And this woman, she's following the spirit of the law. She gave all that she had. Right? So if our libertine-minded Christians, our antinomian-minded Christians, the no-law-type Christians, if they would keep that in mind and perspective, right, then instead of being misers of the money, well, because I'm not in a law, I'm going to keep my 10%, they would recognize that they have been freed to give more than their 10%. That's the Christian life! To give generously, abundantly, happily, cheerfully, willingly, as unto the Lord. This is why the Christian life cannot be, I tithe today, I gave my 10%, I checked my box. Now you might give 10%, that's fine. You're free to do so. You may not have given 10%, that's fine. You're free to do so. But in what spirit did you perform that act of worship? And there we begin to be able to identify what it means to live the Christian life. How much did Christ give towards us, by the way? Did he just give his right arm? Maybe two fingers on his left hand? Maybe he gave him the, the foot up to the ankle. Is that what Christ gave on the cross? We know that's not true. He gave all. He was a, we call it a full and complete offering. A complete sacrifice. 
So there are times when the spirit of the law may demand more of the Christian than the letter of the law ever did. And I personally believe that this is the heaviness of the Christian antinomian types. They miss this reality in their theology. But then he repeats himself. All things are lawful for me, you say, but not all things contribute or advantage you. All things are lawful for me, you say. But then Paul comes back with this retort. But I will not be dominated by anything. What a statement. It hit me just a moment ago, as I was preparing for this point, that we oftentimes misjudge our liberty. And being freed, we think we are free when in fact we are really still slaves. You know, history books celebrate the emancipation period. We finally did it. We freed the black man. We freed the black woman. They're now free. They don't have to stay under the slavery of their masters. But when you read your history books, do you know how many blacks actually left the plantations? Where are they going to go? What are they going to do? What means do they have? If they leave their master now, they die. They're free! And yet here they are, still obligated. They have to. It's life for them. They can't, go, they can't do anything. They can't go anywhere. They have nothing. We don't talk about that part of liberation. You know what? The Jews were the same way. Remember Jesus coming to the Pharisees or having this conversation? And Jesus says, those to whom they serve... To that, they will be enslaved, right? That will become their master. And they got, they got all up in arms. They said, what? We're, we're not. We've never been enslaved. As they were subjects of Caesar in the moment. <laughs> right? They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They had gone in and out of different communities during the exile when the kingdoms were split, right? It seemed like they couldn't, they couldn't have just one capture you know they all the world took turns being owners of the jewish people and they said to jesus we've never been enslaved we're free men jesus, you gotta think like jesus you just like what's he gonna say to that right he's like well let me just say this the one to whom you serve that is your master the one to whom you give allegiance that is your master sometimes we do that sometimes we think we're free and yet we are actually enslaved. We're actually in bondage to the very things that we think we are free from. So we can't miss this expression. I am free to do all things, Paul says, they say, and yet he reminds them, I will not be dominated by anything. And this is very interesting language because in the original language, we have something that's put into play for us by way of words. And, and Anthony Thistleton draws this out in his commentary very well, where he points out a play on language here. And basically, as he puts it in translation, he says, Paul is saying something to the effect of, I have liberty to do all things you say, but I will not let anything take liberties with me. Meaning sometimes the things that we're, we think we're free from are taking advantage of us rather than being our advantage. And we miss that in our English language, but it's very clear here in the Greek. Paul says you're free, and yet you let things take liberties with you. 
What kind of freedom is that? Paul elaborates here on how freedom and self-discipline relate to each other and anticipates the rebuttal that would most certainly follow by the Corinthian believers. They might say to him, but we are free from the law, Paul. But he will insist that such a license contradicts what it is to be in Christ. Freedom is not an unqualified license to gratify the desires of the self. Can I just say this to you? I'm thinking right now, I can see three, four people right now who've embraced what is called New Covenant theology. And you know me, I despise that theology very much. New Covenant theology says that the old in its totality has been abrogated and all we have to follow is the teaching of Christ. And I think of these individuals that I know, men that I've loved and prayed with, and I've I've sat down and we've spent hours sharpening each other. I, I think of these men right now, their, their, their faces are in my mind, three or four of them. Every one of them, after embracing this antinomian way of thinking, have fallen into grievous sins. You know why? Because they were not under the law of God. They only follow what Jesus taught. And there are many, many things that Jesus did not teach explicitly. And I've told you before, the reason for this is because he's already taught it as God in the old. This is where Reformed theology gets it right. There are multiple uses of the law. And one of those is to inform the Christian in the ways and will of God. We can know the mind and heart of God. Read the Old Testament that heart and that mind has not changed. Now certainly we are not enslaved to it, chained to it by way of written declaration, but the Spirit still lives in us through faith. The same Spirit that brought the law to Moses, it's the same Spirit that is written on our hearts and creation. It's the same Spirit that regenerated us unto life to that word in our salvation. The Spirit still is alive, the Spirit of that law. God does not violate himself. He's not against himself. And so you say, well, we don't have to obey it, the written law. But you do have to listen to the Spirit of that law. For it lives because it is God's expression. And so he will insist that such a license contradicts what it is to be in Christ. And so freedom is not an unqualified license to gratify the desires of the self, not the least because the new Christian self has a new identity as a new creation in Christ. Riddlebarger explains this expression in his commentary as a fear that the apostle had that, quote, a Christian, paradoxically, may unwittingly become enslaved to the very things he is now free to do, unquote. And this would cause a free man to function in the capacity of a slave when he is not indebted to do so. Would you turn quickly, please, to the book of Galatians? Can I give you one verse to show this? Here's how Paul is going to expound this to the Galatians when he writes to them. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Um, let's back up. 
Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for what? The flesh. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be so. God forbid. How can you who are dead to sin live in it any longer? That's a transformation that the gospel brings to one's life. Someone's addicted. They have to shoot up. This is the only... They get a few, few minutes of release and, and peace. And they go and they go and then they, they have to do it again and again. That's not satisfying. They work all week just to booze it up on the weekend. Just to, just to lose the pain of this present reality. And when they come back to the senses, it's still there. You want to be affectioned and love. You want an identity. And so we express ourselves in so many ways sexually at the end of the day. We still feel lost and uncertain and confused. You see, the flesh doesn't give you the answers. We've been free, set free from that unto Christ. And then we come to verse 13. Notice if you have a modern translation, again, it's going to be in, in, in quotation or parentheses. I don't forget what they're called, the little doodads. Another slogan, another maxim is being addressed. You say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This would be equivalent to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we what? In fact, Paul's going to, he's going to, he's going to speak to that statement later on in this letter. You say, well, our stomach, we all have a stomach. And it all groans and moans and pains when we're hungry. It wants to eat. So if the stomach is there and it's for food and it wants food, what do we give it? Food. Well, here we are in the flesh. Our flesh has a need, has a sexual desire. It craves, it wants. So what do we give it? We give it sex. We give it sexual expression. We give it what it wants. This, this is kind of the argument that the Corinthians were making for their 1960-style free love. And in this maxim, it, it basically is meant to reinforce the Greek philosophy of the body and later the Gnostic heresy concerning the body that all matter is temporary and carries no lasting consequence on the body spiritually. Why? Because when you die, what happens to your body? Even the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. This, this body, right, when it dies, it corrupts. But you see, the, the pagans just left it there. The body corrupts. So if the stomach is part of the body, and the body has cravings, and the stomach has cravings, and we give freely the stomach's cravings, but now you're not going to give the flesh its craving, that's just unnatural. The body being a temporal, unnatural, or, or a temporal, natural reality, you know, it has a craving, it has a need, we give it to it. 
Besides, when we die, it corrodes, it goes away. It's not going to matter because what really matters, what is truly spiritual, is your spirit. And so the heresy here is that you can separate the inner man from the outer man. So if we're going to feed the stomach food, why not feed the sexual desire what it desires? And so it seems that the point of the slogan was that sex was as natural and transient as eating was. The body has a need for both, and so bodily cravings are meant to be satisfied. Paul admits the truth of that slogan concerning the stomach, but he reminds the Corinthians that God is going to destroy both the one and the other. There is food for the body and body for the food, but one day both of those are going to be consumed. They're going to be gone. But on the other hand, here's Paul's retort. On the other hand, the body is not as temporary as the stomach. And neither was the body made for sexual earthly gratification, but it was meant for the Lord. Actually, his word is it was made for the Lord. Namely, his glory, verse 20. And just as the stomach needs food, listen to this church, Just as the stomach needs food to satisfy it, so too the body needs the Lord if it's to find its ultimate satisfaction. This is why those who give their bodies over to all kinds of earthly, sensual cravings and passions, at the end when they wake up the next morning, it's all still very empty. Because their body was not made for the boozing and the women and the drugs. The body was made for their Savior. That's the difference. You're going to make an earthly argument for a spiritual one? You err, dear Corinthians. The body has eternal significance. And while the stomach belongs to the earthly, the body as a whole unit looks forward to an existence past the decomposition that the stomach will experience into the eternal. When we die, the coroner takes our body, right, and we go, and they begin to work on us and prep us for burial. What do they remove from a body? No, I only know this because my, my dad worked at a funeral home when I was growing up. So as a kid, I was privy to a lot of things. So if you want some good stories, we'll have a conversation sometime. I can tell you a lot of amazing things that I experienced as a grade school aged kid. Uh, but when, when a body's prepped, for burial, the internals are all taken out. The stomach is removed. The stomach goes away. It's gone. And yet the body form remains. And we put the body in the ground, and yet it's absent of all of its temporary earthly need. It's gone. Just the shell is laid into the grave. Verse 14 is going to make this connection when it highlights for us spiritually our connection with Christ. Notice this. For just as God raised Christ, he will also raise us up by his power. This is the powerful reality of being in Christ and Christ being in us. The body was made for Christ, and he will have it. And he'll have it in eternity as well. So what we see from this is that God does care about what is done with the body because it's his body. He owns it. He made it. He created it for himself. 
when Paul told the Corinthian believers that Jesus was made redemption to them in chapter 1, verse 30, it wasn't just the soul that was redeemed. But the whole of man will be part of this redemption. And they will be fully redeemed as a whole individual when they stand in the presence of God on that day. Of which Christ's own resurrection is promised hope concerning. Paul does this for the Romans, chapter 6. He does it for the Corinthians. In fact, when we get to chapter 15, he's going to talk about the body that dies in corruption but then the one that is raised, what? Incorruptible. There's a coming day for those who are in Christ. When Jesus comes again, trumpet blast, the shout is given. The dead in Christ are going to rise from the, and they're going to be transformed. They're going to have bodies again. Now it's very possible we're going to eat. But these bodies are going to be absent of the earthy type of function to the point that we may not even have a stomach, so to speak. Think about this. But we will have our bodies. And they're going to be glorified bodies. And they're going to be perfect images of the Savior who redeemed them. Right? So do you think he cares about what you do with your body? He does. He does. If you look down for a few verses, we're not going to do this, but if you just look, he's going to make another argument. Do you not know this about yourselves? That you are not your own, right? But you are the temple, the inner sanctum where he dwells. Christian, we cannot give ourselves over to immoral sexual expressions. It's not okay for us to engage in pornography, extramarital relationships, homosexuality. Any kind of sexual perversion outside of what God has instituted is a sin. And it is not for the believer to use their body for. Because the body doesn't belong to those things. Those cravings are not for the body. The body is for Christ and Christ for the body. And if we're going to crave, let us learn to crave him who is our ultimate satisfaction who is our salvation. Now let's finish Paul's point in verse 14. We'll close here. Unlike the stomach, the eternal nature of the body should cause an effect on our present behavior. John speaks to this. Those who who know that we are going to be like him when we see him, right? When we see him, we're going to be like him. And so those who know that, John says, even now, purify themselves. So John gets this in 1 John. Paul gets it right here in 1 Corinthians 6. If our eternal nature of the body is what he says it is, then this should cause an effect on our present behavior. If our bodies were only doomed to the present condition of the stomach, then fine, live out your sexual immorality. But our bodies have eternal significance and expectation and purpose. And as such, the body is to be guarded as that inter sanctum and is therefore kept as holy unto the Lord to whom it belongs. Let me close with this. 
literally, I'm closing, just so I'm not tempted. Let me give you this Matthew Henry quote in his commentary. It's fantastic. Listen to this. Some understand this last passage. The Lord is for the body thus. He is for its resurrection and glorification according to what follows, 1 Corinthians 6.14, which is a second argument against this sin. The honor intended to be put on our bodies. God hath raised us up for he has raised up our Lord. And he has raised us up by his power, by the power of him who shall change our vile body and make it like to his glorious body. By that power whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. It is an honor done to the body. Listen to this. It is an honor done to the body that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And it will be an honor to our bodies that they will be raised. Let us not abuse those bodies by sin and make them vile, which, if they be kept pure, shall, notwithstanding their present vileness, be made like to Christ's glorious body. Note, Matthew Henry says, the hopes of a resurrection to glory should restrain Christians from dishonoring their bodies by fleshly lusts. You see, the Corinthian church began to adopt the ideology of their culture. And they began to say the things that the world was saying and believe the things the world believed. Well, it's just natural sexual desire. It's no different than if our stomachs wanted to eat. Paul says, hang on, put on the brakes. You know not what you say. Do you not know this about yourself? You are not your own. You are not your own. You are the temple of the living God. We'll expound on that together next week, God willing. Let's pray.